Hi, I'm Lori Jones, President and CEO of Avisec Communications and host of the Integrate and Ignite Marketing Podcast. Join me and my guests, some of the world's top innovators, disruptors, and visionaries as we explore bold and bright marketing strategies for scaling and growing your brand. Lloyd Lobo is the co-founder of Boast AI and Traction and the author of Grassroots to Greatness. He is a master of marketing, growth, and community building, and my guest on this episode of the Integrate and Ignite Marketing Podcast. Get ready to dive into a world of valuable insights and witty banter as we explore Lloyd's journey from the slums of Mumbai to building iconic brands, communities, bootstrapping his company to $10 million in revenue, and navigating growth capital. Welcome to the Integrate and Ignite podcast. I am thrilled to have Lloyd Lobo join the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Lori. This is going to be a lot of fun. You have great energy. I love your <laughs> show. So thank you. Well, I tell you, I'm so excited. I, I, so we're going to talk about so much today. We're going to talk about your entrepreneurial spirit. Um, look at all these brands that you've got on right now. We're going to talk about Boast.io and ultimately how that led to your newest book, which is uh, from grassroots to greatness. Uh, before we dive into all of that, tell us a little bit about your journey. Definitely. My journey is that of an accidental entrepreneur. Journey before <laughs> building Boast AI was uh, was of an accidental entrepreneur. I you know, grew up in Kuwait, born to Indian parents who were piss poor. My mom grew up in the slums of India. My dad was a farmer. They weren't educated. They couldn't go out West because they weren't educated. The only option if they wanted to make any sort of money was go to the Middle East where the currency was a little more favorable and you didn't have to be educated. And so literally my childhood summer vacations were spent in the slums of Mumbai. Wow. Um, the, 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 the benefit actually of uh, working in the Middle East is this, that the employer by employers by law are required to give you and your family round trip tickets back home, wherever home hmm. is. So my parents grew up in India, piss poor, went to work to, uh, in, in Kuwait. And wow. so the benefit was every summer I spent my childhood uh, vacations there in the slums of Mumbai. And it was, it was very interesting because, you know, the, my, my mom had nine siblings and uh, her and her nine siblings and parents lived in this slum, which was four, I guess, uh, cement block walls and an aluminum roof, no wow. toilet. And so going to the toilet was a community activity. You're standing in line, it's communal. <laughs> Just like water. Ephesus all those years ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then and then and then and then um pumping water every morning was a communal activity because you're standing in line. It would rain in the summers a lot, so puddles would turn into ponds and we'd be swimming in there. Watching TV was a communal activity because not many homes had one. My mom worked, my parents were in the Middle East, so they could bring back a TV. If you cooked a little extra, you share with your neighbor. So that was my first experience with community. Wow. And what's really interesting, Lori, is every summer when we had to go back to Kuwait, I would just grab them by the feet and say, please don't take me, leave me here. I just want to mm. be here. And as I reflect back today, probably I've I've been in some of the most exquisite situations in some of the finest chateaus in France, sipping champagne and wine. And you know, I, nothing is more memorable to me than than that childhood. And your childhood. Of, I mean, it, it's 
it's truly built who you are today. I mean, the tenacity, the grit, um, the ability to think outside the box. Um, you've built a massive company through through those learnings all those years ago. Tell us about uh, tell us about Boast. Definitely. So those learnings are very interesting because a lot of people tell me, "Oh man, you went through hardship. You went through hardship." Honestly, Lori, I don't know if I don't know if it's me, but I never felt any hardship in my life. Mm. Never, never once felt any hardship in my life because few years after into my that's good parenting my, too. By the way. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Definitely. It really is. So my parents always shielded me um, and, and never made me feel like we were going through hardship. But there's one common thread, right? So growing up or spending my childhood summers in the slums of Mumbai, then fast forward a few years when I was nine or 10, Kuwait was hit by the Gulf War where security had lapsed. There was no phone. There was no internet. Every building became a sub-community that coordinated with the next building, the next building. And it became the largest grassroots evacuation movements that communicated with embassies and governments in the UN and, and rescued people to safety. And, um, you know, maybe this summarizes what good parenting is, but I was going on this rickety bus from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan on the wow. highway of death. And, and you can Google search highway of death. Buses were bombed. You weren't sure if you're going to live or die. The one thing that was very constant, Lori, is the adults around the bus were laughing and singing and playing the guitar. And that was mind boggling to me because it's mixed signals as a kid, right? Like they tell you there's war, there's uncertainty, there's no currency. We don't know where we're going to go yet. Everyone is having a good time. And fast forward today, you know, in, in when I went from being piss poor to having millions and I end up getting depressed, I realized something that it's neither the destination nor the journey, but the companions that matter the most. You could be on a crappy journey on the way to hell, but great companions make it memorable. And the reason why I say this and and a lot of this we say in different ways that you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. But ultimately, your companions matter the most. And the reason why in my life I've never felt any hardship is because I'm always surrounded by great companions, great community of mm -hmm. people. And so that Gulf War experience, Lori, gave me two things. One, it taught me the power of people when united by a great purpose can change the course of the world. Imagine what they did there was... Security had lapsed, no internet, no phone, yeah. and coming together to get people out of there was insanity. But the other thing it taught me was that great leaders cascade purpose, not just goals, right? And, and uh, an example comes to mind with President Kennedy when he was walking the halls of NASA at midnight, he sees a janitor sweeping the room and he asked the janitor, what are you doing at this hour? And the janitor says, sir, I'm putting a man on the moon. That is uh, what get great leaders do. They cascade purpose where the lowest common denominator feels like they're driving the cause. So for me, Rambo was huge at the time in the, in the 90s. Right? And I would throw a red bandana on and run around trying to help. Nobody once told me you're being disruptive. They made me feel like I am little Rambo rescuing Kuwait mm -hmm. from Saddam Hussein. They made me feel like I was the driver, not like a cog in the wheel. And I understood that. But the last thing it gave me, which stuck with me forever, is the appetite for risk and uncertainty. It taught me the entrepreneurial spirit inadvertently, because most people, they laugh when I say I, I got the entrepreneurial spirit by being a refugee of the Gulf War. What is entrepreneurial spirit? It's not about making money. It's right. about taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. The mm -hmm. most successful entrepreneurs know how to deal with risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. There's no bigger risk and uncertainty when your life is on the line. What were you saying to yourself at that time? Um, were you 
were you just looking for for the next opportunity, even at nine or 10? Did you know that you wanted a different life? Were you even able to think that way? I wasn't able to think that way, but you know, years later it comes to comes to me, right? Because I'll I'll tell you something funny as I walk through the journey of Bose, but years later it comes to me because a lot of what we are, Lori, in life is not nature. It's not what we're born with. It's nurture, right? Mm. Because because we, you know, what we try to react to situations with is our experience. It's it's our it's what we learn. But mm -hmm. when you're punched in the face repeatedly, it's your reflexes that kick in. And the, those reflexes are a function of habit and how you've nurtured, not just what you're born with. And so a few years after the Gulf War, we ended up immigrating to Canada. Now, I hadn't finished high school, okay, um, in my in my teens. I, I just missed all my high school exams. I was always this rebellious kid. I don't know why. I, I'm always on the other side of uncertainty and risk. I don't know how I got that appetite. And I, I only attribute it to my experience with the Gulf War, but I was Absolutely. always- Yeah, I our listeners always... know exactly where you got that appetite. I mean, it was through those experiences. But but it's it's also, you know, there were a lot of kids who had the same experience, but they, they didn't uh, go down this path. But I feel like, you know, me being there and in the community I was, or the small sub-community I was, where people were letting me take charge and help alongside and mm -hmm. go through the ride alongside them like a driver, uh, gave me that risk and uncertainty. So I didn't finish high school. And now I we immigrate to Canada and I got to apply to universities. And I, I know I can't apply to university. Now, here's the key learning. Most kids, if they didn't finish high school, they won't apply to university, right? That's a given. Right. Like, now, luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. And I tell people this all, all the time. The ones that get lucky are the ones that never stop flipping risk. That's exactly flipping, right. We're going to talk about DNA risk, in a minute. You know, that is the is the ultimate. Exactly. So if you keep flipping risk, one day you're going to get lucky. So I apply to every single university in Canada. There's no SATs in Canada. Luck would have it. One university called me to write an entrance exam. I wrote the math in English. I did well. I had sent them the last year's transcripts. And they tell me, hey, why don't you start the semester? And when your transcripts are in, send it to us. I told them there's some unrest in the country I came from. And they said to me, but if you don't send us the transcripts within the month, then we're, you're going to have to unenroll. But we don't want you to miss out because your scores were good. Yeah. Now, luck would have it. They never followed up. And I graduated <laughs> an engineering degree. I love it. That is some lost paperwork that I'm really, I'm sure you're very glad never never got to who it needed to get to. Ugh. Exactly, exactly. So I now I finish engineering and I, again, don't want to do a nine to five job. It just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so I asked people I knew that were in business, hey, if I want to be a business person like you someday, because back in the day, we didn't call it startup or entrepreneur, just businessman, businesswoman, yeah. business person. Like, what is the skill I need to have? And they would all tell me one thing consistently. You suck at speaking. Like, you're an awkward communicator. <laughs> you need to improve your communication because being an entrepreneur or business person is all about how you communicate. It's about selling. It's about convincing. Like, imagine you got to convince your spouse that you're not going to bring money. You're going to convince customers that you have no credibility, but trust in me and buy right. my stuff. Convince employees to work on low pay. Now, I thought to myself, hey, I can probably take public speaking classes, but I'm not very self-motivated. And self-motivated is not showing up when you're living on the beach and, and in a relaxed situation. Self-motivated is, am I able to show up when I'm repeatedly punched in the gut? Right. And I thought to myself, hey, if I went on stage and five people laughed me off, 
I'd never want to go and learn to public speak again. I'd just not do it. So I said, then what's the next best thing? How can I put myself in an environment that requires me to communicate day in, day out? So I started applying to sales jobs because I'm like, that is not self-motivation. That's an environment. Now, again, I, I use the word luck a lot because I applied to every sales job. I didn't stop. Like the Xeroxes and the ones with the best training programs wouldn't give me a sales job because I'm an engineer, awkward. Luck would have it, one startup founder needed cold callers and I got my first job in cold calling. That's great. And, and I want to... As we go through the story, I want to say the four things you need to have that will drive everything for you in life with these four things. And I call them the four C's. And so the first C being your companions, your community. And so because I work for this startup founder now, I, you know, I built this good affinity towards startups. I understood the risk of startups that, that I was craving. Mm -hmm. And the first call I practiced maybe four hours, the decision maker shows up on the line. I hang up right away and everyone's laughing. The thing is, I'm in an environment now where I can't stop, right? I need to make money. So I, I learned to cold call, cold call, cold call, and I get better and better at it. Now, my my girlfriend today, wife, I mean, I'm sorry, my wife today, girlfriend back then, she got into medical school in New Jersey. Canada, US had a free trade agreement, NAFTA, still do the, the TN visa. I apply right. to jobs in the US now, sales jobs. Nobody else would give me a job. No established company. One you're, you need a visa to, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. You're an engineer turned cold caller. What kind of job you would get? Luck would have it <laughs> because I work for a startup. Some other startup saw value in it and gave me a job in sales. I land up there on this TN visa, living in an attic in New Jersey, paying $500 a month rent. And I, I land up there and it's not quite a sales job because they don't have a repeatable, scalable product or a sales process. So it's talk to customers and figure out what they need to build. Um, and then uh, figure, figure out what, what value they need. And then based on that value, write down the product requirements so the development team knows what exactly to build. And oh, by the way, build the marketing website and the sales mm -hmm. collateral and all of this. And I'm like, what did I get myself into? Now, if you see today, most kids, if they end up in a job like that where they applied for a sales job, but they're literally founder plus one, talk to customers, figure out the pain points, right. tell the devs what to build, build the marketing, they would quit. I had no option. Again, this wasn't self-motivation. This is, I'm in an environment where I- It's survival mode at this stage. Exactly. And so I learned to do all those things because I said, if I want to be with this girl, which served me really well, I mean, I'm everything I am because of her, I need to do this. And I learned to get better at sales, but I also got better at product management and marketing. I learned all those things. And think about what you do as a founder, as an entrepreneur, right? You need to talk to customers and convince them to buy your stuff. You need to polish your messaging and understand the value prop. You need to distill that value prop into things that need to be built or productized by your team. And then you also need to create the marketing messaging. Who's going to do that for you when you have zero capital and early days? It's the right. job to do. So I learned those skills now working for two founders, worked there a couple of years. And then my next job went from the trajectory, went from cold caller to being sort of like a Renaissance salesperson and then end up running sales and marketing, then went to another startup where I got a job as a head of sales and marketing. So very quick trajectory. So the key learning there also tells you, not only was the community that helped me formulate this, this mental tenacity, but also the community or the people I surround myself with enabled me to be an entrepreneur. I understood the risk appetite. Mm -hmm. I understood how to do it. If I hadn't worked for three founders back to back, it would be much harder for me to internalize what it's like to create a startup on my own. I would be lost. 
And do you so, know why my, you why you organically gravitated toward that? I mean, there's some luck involved in it, um, but you could have sold, sold shoes also. You were gravitating toward these entities that were more risky to begin with. You know, honestly, I don't know if there's any science there, but because I graduated engineering, I started applying and I didn't want to work in engineering. And I asked people, hey, what's the best skill you can have? And they said, communication and sales is everything. And so I started applying to sales jobs at tech companies. Now, most established tech companies wouldn't want a salesperson who, who's never done sales and just came off being an engineer, an awkward communicator. Mm -hmm. So I guess desperation mode, a startup with no resources and funding needs cold callers. That's how I landed yeah. in, in a startup. And then the next job when I applied, also ended up being at a startup because somebody, some startup founder valued it that couldn't probably get an established person there. And so I, I think that luck carried, that was the luck piece of it, but I gravitated one risk appetite, but you know, you got to, I guess the key learning here is you got to niche down before you niche up, right? Like yeah. you can say, I can sell everything, but no, like what is your zone of genius? So like, what are you passionate about? Right. When you draw these uh, sort of Venn diagram, it's like, what are you passionate about or what do you draw joy from? What is your skill set and what is your talent? I think. And yeah. for me, I guess my natural talent was community and bringing people together. The skill I had acquired was, uh, was sales. My education was engineering. And, and, uh, and so that and overlap worked out. And and some of this I, I think is so interesting and it you know it goes back to the DNA of entrepreneurs. There's just a lot of commonsensical things that you're talking about when it comes to growing a community, to, you know, understanding what the message points are, how you're going to interact with customers, how you're going to find the best in, in, you know, insights from customers. That innate ability to sell is, you know, also ties right into that. And then trainable. And you have that innate ability to do all that. Um, and and you then decide that you're going to form your own company. Uh, tell us about Boast and then what those early learnings ultimately led to regarding your ability to then hire people um, that were more like you. Definitely. So the journey up to Boast, I'll summarize the key skills that I, I learned, right? So the first thing I said was, community, your companions matter the most, right? Your, your community is your currency. The second thing I learned was the value of communication. When I took that cold calling job for peanuts or minimum wage, my parents lost it. They're like, your friends have jobs at Microsoft and Johnson and Johnson. Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Today, it's the skill that served me the most. So communication is everything. If you can't communicate, you don't have an audience. You have an empty room. The third is your ability to create because right. I work for startups. I was creating, and I, not only was was I creating content, I was creating playbooks from scratch, like how to make the first calls, how to build a sales team, how to build marketing materials. I was creating, right? And that was huge. And the fourth C, without this fourth thing, you have nothing. You may be the best communicator. You may be the best creator. You may have the best community. But without this fourth C, which is consistency, you have nothing. Mm -hmm. Everything great is on the other side of doing things consistently, right? Look at it. Warren Buffett, never stop. He talked about compound interest on consistency or Mr. Beast or Larry Ellison. These people never stop, right? Compound in interest on consistency is what we call overnight success. Consistency right. is the secret ingredient that turns small actions into big outcomes. So my summary, my learnings until I started Boast was community, 
communication, creation, and consistency. So Boast, my co-founder, was one of my best friends in university, called me and said, hey, I want to do a startup in this. So globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given by governments to fund businesses for product development and innovation. But it's a cumbersome, broken application process. It's prone to frustrating audits. And receiving the money takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said he was working for a big four accounting firm. Mostly these are done by big four accounting firms. And he said, you know, there should be a better way. We should be able to automate and streamline this. You want to work together. I jumped at the opportunity to work for him because I'd only been working at startups that were funded and they weren't really going anywhere. They haven't, they hadn't done well and, you know, very stressful CEOs. So I jumped right. at the opportunity to work with him. I moved into his spare bedroom in his apartment and what do you do day one now, right? And this is this also ties with rules of building a community-led business or a community or a company. What do you do day one? You have a business idea. First thing is, I got to get customers, at least in my mind, because I have no other money. I don't have the money. We don't have the, the funds or the resources to say, let's build a product. It's like, get customers, figure out if there is a pain point, and then deliver it to that pain point. So that is number one. But how do you start? So we said, okay, you know what? Who are all the stable established companies? Oh, it's manufacturing, it's construction, it's oil and gas. So we start calling them. They wouldn't take our calls. Imagine what we're saying. Give us your technical financial data and we'll get you money. (laughs) We'll get you this money from the government. No equity, no interest, best form of capital. Like, who are you guys? Never even heard of you. Sounds kind of scammy if you got a call like that. Absolutely. And the ones that that knew about it were working with big four accounting firms. So dejected, Lori we start attending events of manufacturing, oil and gas construction, and we just couldn't resonate. We looked like two guys who threw on a hoodie or a suit on top of a hoodie, and they felt like the cigars club. It didn't feel like a like our tribe. We couldn't resonate. We couldn't have the conversations we wanted to. And so dejected now, we start looking at, oh, what are the events happening for entrepreneurs and startups? And we start going to the startup and entrepreneurial events. And we felt immediate resonation. We felt camaraderie right away. It became our tribe. Right. We started hanging out with them. They were starting their own companies. We start, were starting our own company. We started eating with them, hanging out with them everywhere they went. We started partying together. We started participating in hackathons together, planning events together. So key learning here, number one, is you want to start a company. Where do you start? First step is figure out your ideal customer profile. How do you figure that out? You know, when you're in it, it feels like you're throwing spaghetti on the wall and you're saying, oh God, please make something stick. Right. When you've made when you've made some money, you're like, okay, this is a framework. So the profound framework there was you need to figure out an ideal customer profile. How do you land on the one you're going to target first, the first niche? Number one is, is it a market you're passionate about that gives you joy? If you hate your customers, and you know this, building a business, let alone a community-led business, is a marathon of the heart and mind. If you hate your customers, how will you sustainably create for the long haul? It's a 10-year-plus journey. If you hate your mm-hmm. customers, you hate what you're doing, it doesn't bring you joy, you can't create. And, and that's what I feel like we target. How did you determine how did how did you determine a product fit? customers that you wanted to work with? I mean, what were the criteria that you thought through and said, okay, these are the non-negotiables and these are where we're really going to focus our energy? Definitely. So, I mean, for the first thing, we knew that we were were going to automate access to government funding. Two, we got repeatedly rejected and beat down from manufacturing oil and gas and construction. In that phase of rejection, we started hanging out with startup founders and we understood where they ate, breathed, 
we like where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. We understood their pain. Serendipity. Their <laughs> Serendipity, right? Yeah. Like, we understood their pains, their goals, their aspirations. So goals and pains are short-lived. It's important to know. It gives you your first product. When you understand your customer's aspirations, it gives you multiple products down the line. And then we understood what stood in their way. And so it was like, when we started hanging out with this startup founders serendipitously, we just felt like we found our tribe. There was great camaraderie. We started right. to eat, breathe, drink, sleep where they did, hang out, watch the same things together, participate in events together, party together. And so we understood that market really well. And so once you understand the pain of a market, and it feels like your own, you have the passion for it. So number one is the passion for that market. Number two is, is, a, is it a small but growing niche? Growing is really important. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck with this obscure mm -hmm. niche. Three is, is there a propensity to pay? If they can't pay, you have no, no business. And the fourth thing is, is there ease of access? You may have right. all the passion for a market, which could be massive, and they could be paying top dollars. But if you have no ease of access, you'll never get off the ground. So and that gave you us this fourth thing. Did you re remain industry agnostic at this time or did you then focus on in so you're you're chasing the behavior at this stage what did you do to um to focus in on industry Yeah so I think for us like startups served as an industry it was the tech industry it was early it was early stage technology entrepreneurs so that became an industry on its own and for us i think i think even today we don't classify startups as an industry which i think it's silly because it's the fastest growing industry and when we were targeting them our competitors would laugh at us saying oh you're gonna go bankrupt these guys never pay and i said you don't want to work with companies like us who are new and your customers don't want to work with us so then we're left to serve our own mm -hmm. the one bet we played Right. And see, one of the key things about winning is to have a contrarian bet that ends up being right. We just <laughs> visualized that, you know, funding dollars are going in innovation. If right. the government of Canada and the U.S. are providing tens of billions of dollars to fund these companies for their innovation, that means it's going somewhere. This and there's the, is going and to there's, explode. Right. And there's a the value prop right there. I mean, exactly. it's it's letting these entities know that you can uncover those monies for them and help them, you know, scale. Exactly. And as a function of helping them scale through money from the government, not only our business exploded, but their businesses grew too. money to fund their innovation. They innovated more. We got more customers. They innovated more. So that gave us the early market. But now that you have the market you want to target and you understand their pains and goals, what else do you need to understand? You need to understand their three Fs. Who do they fund? Meaning what are the tools and services they pay for? This gives you a list of people you can partner with. Mm -hmm. Who do they follow? Meaning who are the influencers they respect? This gives you a list of people that you can invite to your podcasts, your events as speakers. So they those influencers whose presence will give you social proof in front of your ideal right. customer. And then the last F is where do they frequent, meaning what blogs, magazines, podcasts, platforms they hang out on. So that gives you your distribution strategy. So we had that down packed. And then, you know, as a function- And you of did all of this without a marketing team. Yeah, because we we didn't, this is marketing. Yeah. Technically, this is marketing is. 101. But most people, and, and you know, it's funny because we bootstrapped to over 10 million. Then we sold 52, 53% of the company to a growth equity, private equity fund. And me and my co-founder stepped onto the board. Since then, we went through three marketing leaders. 
it will all come with this idea of, oh, let's build a new website and let's do this and that. I'm like, how about getting back to the basics here, right? Yeah. Provide more value to the same ideal customer through the channels we have been successful in versus going and chasing shiny objects. I think marketing has, and, and this is why marketing in 2023 is taking a bloodbath is because we're more focused on the pizzazz, more focused on the shiny object. Totally versus agree. But it's principle. the strength, but it's the lack of, of knowledge and savvy of people hiring as well. This is how I'll position that statement. There are strategic marketers and there are tactical marketers, even if they have that CMO title and they can have deep understanding of moving people through the funnel. If they are a tactical marketer, the first thing they are going to say is, let's redo the brand. Let's redo the website. The messaging is not working. They don't have the strategic savvy to understand what it takes to position and motivate, you know, even with a current website. And that I think is where marketing gets a bad name because they don't deserve the CMO title at that stage. They still need to be learning under a, a true strategic marketer to understand, you know, the fundamentals of, of positioning and differentiation. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I think, I think a lot of this happens because CEOs, like you rightfully said, we don't know how to hire for this role. Right. And so they want to hear what's the latest trend. Oh, how are you using AI in marketing, for example, right. And all of these things. And so then uh, it leads to this chain reaction where they're fed shiny objects because they need to stand out chase in interviews. the carrot. Yeah. Yeah. But totally what, really, what wins the day is first principles. Who's your customer? What are their pain points? Who's their circle of influence? And how do you leverage that knowledge to then deliver value to them? And for us, it was, we found two white spaces. We literally found two white spaces because we were targeting a small, small niche. White space number one was nobody wanted to provide coverage to startups in 2012. Mm-hmm other than TechCrunch and the big ones, which was hard to get into. And uh, the region where we were doing business in our first market, the startups were dejected. Hey, we don't get any press, no love, no coverage. The second thing was all the events that were happening. Now think about it. This is 2012. Podcasting for business wasn't huge. LinkedIn wasn't huge for content. TikTok, Insta wasn't a thing. So there was all blogs by influencers, right? By tech luminaries were writing blogs. But the imp and, and it was the blogs, and it was events. The events at the time in that region were all high-level CEO platitudes, inspirational talks. How much inspiration can I listen to if I've decided to quit my job and do a company? I don't need inspiration. I need tactics. How do I get my first customers? How do I launch my product? Nobody was talking about that. And I guess because it, those events for founders and startups were run by event organizers. So an aha moment came to us. We started reaching out to the local newspaper and said, give us a column where we'll write about startups. And obviously the most newspaper is going to say, no, it's not of interest. Mm -hmm. So we didn't take that rejection. We reached, we reached out to a regional blog and we said, can you give us a column to cover startups or like a guest post? And they said, yeah, regional blogs will give you that. So we covered other startups because we hadn't done a successful venture yet. So we could only talk about other, other ventures, other people's ventures. And we, we wrote about it, the two or three startups that were hot in the region at the time. And now we didn't sit. See, a lot of people, what they do is they put their content on LinkedIn and other platforms and they hope and pray that the platform will give them distribution. But when you have no right. audience, 
You got to seed it. So mm -hmm. we put this blog post out and I reached out to everyone in my contact list and everyone I knew in the community, including the people I had written this blog post about and drove traffic to it. It got hundreds of tweets and retweets. Then I took that blog post. I reached back to the editor. Hey, you didn't let me, you didn't give me the opportunity to write, but I wrote for this regional blog. Look at the amount of traffic it's gotten. Yeah. You're, lo you're losing an audience that is going to be the largest audience growing into the future. If you give me a column, I'll write for free for the foreseeable future. And he said, you know what? You're right. This column has got a lot of traffic. How about this? I can't give you a column. I'll give you a blog post. Let's see it's what a start. it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a start. Now, I could call that blog post any number of things. And, and this is another key learning. Unless you're doing something illegal as an entrepreneur, never <laughs> ask for permission. Beg for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Okay? I call that uh, blog post startup of the week. Uh now... <laughs> Now, now the funny thing is in 2012, in a, in a small community, a small region, in, in when they see a newspaper blog that says Startup of the Week, it creates the implication that the newspaper has launched a weekly award ceremony to cover the best startups. Yeah. They saw me as a messiah. They're like, oh, Lloyd came and he's covering startups in Startup of the Week. We never had that kind of coverage before. And that second blog post I did now for the newspaper drove even more reach and traffic and retweets. Now the editors called me and I'm I'm seeing like two missed calls. I call him back, freaking out. I'm like, oh, he's going to lose it. Why did you call it startup of the week? I never guaranteed you a weekly column. And he said, that was really good. If you commit to writing it every week, not only will I make this a weekly online column, I'll give you a print column. Ah, uh, I love it. Wow. Yeah. So that is that, that is what I say is luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. You you keep flipping and eventually you get lucky, right? If if I took that first rejection and I didn't go to the regional blog, blog and write a post, and then if I just stopped at writing the post and didn't drive traffic to it, that startup of the week column would never happen. Mm -hmm. Now, as a function of that startup of the week column happening, my obscure Boast AI website got a weekly backlink from the highest domain authority website in the country, which is the newspaper. Yeah. So my yes. SEO started to jump. And then, then I get, uh, I throw a form in there saying, if you're interested in being featured, apply. So I start getting email addresses. So my audience is building. And instant social proof. These two guys who nobody knew are newspaper columnists. So they must be good. The things that they're saying, they'll get us R&D money. There must be some credibility to it. And the fourth thing is these entrepreneurs would go every Monday because even in 2023, with a lot of blogs and proliferation, proliferation of online content, a newspaper column article in it was print, a big deal. Yeah. It, well, and what I love um, so much about what you're talking about is the it, it's very tactical, like you said, but it's so smart to ultimately build the community. Uh, that is what Boast is all about. Um, community-led growth. Um, that's what the book is about. It's where you're heading now. Um, and all of that was just an instant customer base for you. Um, and, you know, uh, from people that believed in the product, that believed in you, and you were trustworthy. Exactly. And so, so that started to give us social proof. We started to build an audience and we got a lot of credibility. Now, we didn't stop there. One, we, you know, I talked about community, communication, creation, and consistency. We wrote that column for more than two years. I, I never stopped. And the day I stopped was when that column also stopped. 
Right. But that started to build our audience. Now, this is a key learning here. As I was writing the book, Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth, I talked to a thousand leaders, looked at some of the most iconic brands and researched and researched and researched, rewatched all the content I'd done over the last six, seven years. And I found some something very interesting. Every obscure idea that eventually became an enduring global phenomena from Christ to CrossFit went through the exact same four stages. People listen to you or buy your product or service, you have an audience. When you bring that audience together to, to connect with one another, to come together, to interact with one another, it becomes a community. When that community comes together to create impact towards a purpose far greater than your product or your profit, it becomes a movement. Mm -hmm. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. Audience, community, movement, religion. So here's the thing. With that online blog, uh, which became a newspaper column, we started building an audience. So we said, now, how do we turn this audience into a community, and we didn't deliberately think that way. It was throwing spaghetti on the wall. We need to meet these people in order to do business with them because we're providing a service that requires high credibility. Nobody's just going to shove their R&D data to mm -hmm. us, right, over reading an online blog or cold calling them. So we said, you know what? We know all the events happening here are high-level CEO platitudes, and all these founders need tactical advice. We had our list of who are the people our ideal customers followed, so we started inviting them to our co-working space to give a talk on how I got my first 10 customers, how I got my first angel yeah. investors, how I did my first marketing plan. And we'd reach out now to all these people applying to be featured in Startup of the Week saying, Startup of the Week saying, hey, we're hosting an event. Lori is going to talk about how to launch your first product. And it's tactical advice, step-by-step -step how to do these things. You got 10 spots and free pizza. Free pizza cost us like $9.99 uh, or like you know 20 bucks for, for 10 people at the time. All 10 people showed up. Week in, week out, we did these. We yeah. never stopped. We kept doing these events. We never stopped. Now, one day, 200 people came to the co-working space. Oh, and I the, love it. And the guys running the co-working space are like, you, can, you can't do this. This is- They're like, we don't, have enough, we don't have enough pizza. <laughs> but they're, they're more like, you're trying to hack a co-working space to run a conference for free. You've hijacked the aisles. You put in makeshift projector, which you got from the music store. Um, you can't do this. Get out of here. Now that transformed eventually into our traction community, which uh, which is now 120,000 subscribers. We've done massive conferences wow. with the CEO of Uber and Twilio and Atlassian and all these big names. But that was where it started, right? Weekly column startup of the week, building an audience, then bringing that audience together to interact with one another, to build a community. And through that, we started building credibility. We started meeting people, having conversations, and we'd naturally get the business because it would be like, these guys are providing so much value. And even if we just ask, hey, how are you funding your R&D? Would you like to work with us? I'm like, sure. Why would I work with anyone else? You're giving us so much value. Right. We're friends, right? So we'll yeah. work with you. And our... As we evolved into hiring a sales team, and I tell people this all the time, as a founder, it's really important in the early days to bring your first 10, 20 customers yourself because it helps you polish the messaging, uh, create the objections, refine things. If you hire, there's no magic salesperson you can hire if you've not sold it yourself because they won't get your vision. Right. And so, so when we understood how to get the first 10, 20, 30 clients, 
Then we hired our first sales rep who eventually ended up becoming our chief business officer as we grew to 10 million. But they all embodied this DNA, the DNA of giving, helping people become successful beyond our product or service because people don't just need R&D money. They need, how do I grow my business? I need a lawyer, maybe I need a banker, I need employees. So we built, by understanding our customers, we built connections with their circle of influence. And so we went from being salespeople or what we should have been salespeople, we end up being community builders, brokers of resources. I can right. connect you. They're like, oh, you need something? The Boast guys will connect you with that. Yeah. And that was, that was the journey. Well, and it's such an incredible journey. And and then, you know, after achieving all of this, you're at 10 million and you begin to talk exit. Uh, bring us back to those conversations. You know, what's really funny is we weren't talking about an exit. Here's what happened. So over the years, over <laughs> other the years, people were talking about your exit. <laughs> you know, over the years, we kept building our legion around in-person interactions. And I truly believe everyone today is online, but if you don't bring your online community, your audience together, it will eventually fade away if you don't sustainably create. Let's say as a creator, you stop creating for a month, you'll start losing that audience. So it's important to bring them together. Plus, Laurie, you probably know this, but I write about this in the book is anytime you incorporate more than two senses, you build stronger connections. When you're in person, when we're online now, we're sound and sight. When we're in person, we're taste, touch, and smell. And you've probably mm -hmm. seen this, right? Like when you meet people in person frequently, you start to build stronger bonds with them. Right. And so we had, so we had built all our marketing engine. We had no marketing, uh, sustained marketing person on the team at any given time. The longest we had was a marketing person for one year and then, and then she left. But I was all around doing events. Now the mm -hmm. pandemic hit and can't do events anymore. What do you we do? We freaked out. We were planning a big conference. We had to cancel. Everyone's like, do a two-day virtual summit. I'm like, I can't sit through a freaking three-hour virtual summit. How am I going to sit through a two-day virtual summit myself? So again, uh, serendipity or necessity is the mother of all inventions. I didn't want to do a two-day virtual summit. I reached out to the 60 speakers or so that we had to cancel the conference for and said, hey, what if we do this online as a Zoom live webinar? We'll invite our community members to join live so you can interact with them. They can interact with you and interact with one another. Would you be open to doing that? And we'll turn the recording into YouTube and into podcasts. They're like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Why not? It's all we and had that, to go by at that time too. Exactly. And that once a week turned into twice a week. And I think in the year we did 110 now events, online events. Wow. And we it went from 50, 60 people joining to 500,000 people joining week over week. And I kid you not, we exited the pandemic. We entered the pandemic with 30 some odd thousand email subscribers. We exited the pandemic with over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah. There was one window to do an in-person event during a little opening. We hosted the in-person event there. Um, and I tell you this, everything I have is because of the community. There's this growth equity firm that comes to the event and they love the event and they, they reach out saying, Hey, it seems like you have great access to founders. We want to invest in, would you be interested in coming on as a venture partner, uh, in our network, joining our venture partner network, and we'll give you commission for deal flow, like free carry, free, wow. we'll give you carry for the deal flow. And I say to them, listen, we have a business to run. I don't have time to do this. We're doing this because it's our biggest, it's our marketing mode. It's our business mode. It's our lead gen. Uh, but I don't have the time and patience to pass you deal flow in exchange for money. 
And they're like, what does your business do? I explained the business. Hey, we automate access to R&D funding from the government, no equity, no dilution, no interest. And they're like, what? It seems like you're selling $100 bills for $20. How's the business doing? I'm like, business is great. We're north of 5 million on the cusp of 10. Um, no marketing, 80% gross margins. Like, how do you generate leads? He said, we do events like the one you came to and the one you reached out. And they expressed interest in buying half the company. And here's that's how and here it you are all these years yeah. later. So it's community-led growth is what we're talking about today. What are some of the learnings um, that you would never repeat again regarding really building and sustaining the community that you have all these years later? Definitely. So the first thing, honestly, is understand your values. Great companies, great communities, great relationships, whether personal or professional, are built on great alignment. If you don't have alignment going in, it's going to be hard to sustain. And so to build a community-led business, you need to understand what are the values of a community-led business. It's all around the joys of giving. Mm -hmm. And if you distill that down, as I talk to hundreds and hundreds of companies and thousands of leaders, I found six very common values. I call them camper or the camper framework. If you have camper in your company, uh, you will have happy campers. Hamper, camper in your community, you'll have happy campers. C stands for connection. You're creating connection amongst people. Mm -hmm. A is autonomy. You don't want to micromanage people. When people have the autonomy, they take charge and build the damn thing. M is mastery. People want to get better and better at what they're doing and not just be stuck like they're some volunteer or typecast in a role yeah. like a slave. So just true. Paper. P is purpose. In 2023, where even if people have lost jobs, they can do consulting and become solopreneurs and content creators. What ties them to, you, to your company? It's providing a purpose that's greater than your product or profit. So having this great sense of purpose. E is energy. Building anything sustaining long-term and look at all these iconic brands that built on energy. Without energy, people just drain out eventually, right? And the right. last one is recognition. When you proactively value people and recognize them for the littlest things, they keep coming back for more. People are not robots. If you proactively go and say, thank you, I really appreciate it. You did a good job. They keep coming back for more. So connection, autonomy, mastery, purpose, wonderful. energy, and recognition. So those are the values. I'm not saying just have these values. You know, you may have other values, but having these six are essential to building a community-led business. The next thing is figure out your ideal customer profile. And we talked mm -hmm. about that right. at length. Um, then it's determine the kind of community you want to build. There's three kinds of communities. One is a community of practice, meaning bringing to people together to learn about a specific skill or a craft. Like Boast, we didn't call our community the Boast community. We called it Traction. There's a big reason mm -hmm. why. Traction is the aspiration of every entrepreneur. If we called it the Boast community, people would think they're coming to a timeshare presentation because think about it. When we started doing these community events, we had no customers. We had no product. So we didn't have product market fit. So the first kind of community is a community of practice, bringing people together to learn about a specific skill or a craft. Next is a community of product, like the Microsoft community or the Notion community, where you bring people together to learn about your product, get better at your product, build on your product, earn from your product. It's all about your product. The issue is if you don't have a product that's used frequently, if you don't have product market fit, or you have no customers, 
how are you going to build a community of product? People will literally think you're inviting them to a timeshare presentation. Right. So don't do that. So right. we were in that first bucket. And the last one is a community of play. Bring people together to have fun, like your golf club or your paddle club or your Harley Davidson's rider club, right? So those are those are the, the things you want to do is what kind of community I want to build, a community of play, a community of product, community of practice. So for us, it was a community of practice with a sub-element of community of play can bring people together to have fun. And then, like I outlined, I think, through our example is create an audience through content. You can either be a curator, meaning summarize content from experts for your niche or be the expert for your niche or do a mix. Like I think what you need to do is in your exercise of understanding your ideal customer profile, write down a hundred burning questions that your audience has. So you have a repository of ideas. And so if you had to write the ultimate guide to do X, Y, Z, what would be the chapters, the sub chapters and topics it would include? Yeah, that's great. And then now you are creating an audience through content and then figure out one channel where you can predominantly distribute on. I'm not saying, you know, don't put it on podcast, don't put it on YouTube, don't put it on LinkedIn. Take but one just, piece of content. Yeah, and slice it and dice and, it from there. Yeah, slice it and dice it on multiple formats and distribute it. But pick one platform where your customers predominantly hang out and go deep there. It's better to be an inch wide and a mile deep. So yes, have your YouTube, but if your customers don't hang out on YouTube, then you don't want to spend the most effort there. Spend the most effort where you go deep and provide the most value on the channel where your audience hangs out on the most. And then as you're building that audience now, bring them together. And I'm not saying host one big conference a year. I'm saying, can you do something sustainably over time where there's a cadence? It can be- They become to expect it at that stage. Yeah, it becomes yeah. like a ritual. We'll do a weekly pizza meetup or you know, we'll do, we'll do some retreat every month. That kind of thing, which is low cost, low energy, but people just want to come from the for the camaraderie and the fun and the learning. Mm -hmm. And when you do those two things consistently, build an audience- through online content, and then bring that audience together through either through a combination of chat interactions and in-person interactions, it starts to become a community. Now, taking that one step further, if you give that community a great purpose and align people to come together to solve for that purpose, it'll start to become a movement. That's what Harley Davidson did, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in the 80s, this company almost went bankrupt. And they rebuilt the company on the ethos of community. The management said, let's go out there and create writer clubs. Employees became writers. Writers became employees. And they created these rituals around coming together to ride together. The joys of writing, the brotherhood of yeah. bikers. And then they turned into movement by coming together to donate and rally for causes like breast cancer and autism. Today, you can recognize a Harley fan, even by just what they're wearing. Even if you see a dog wearing a leather jacket, you're like, oh, that's a Harley Davidson puppy or a dog. Yeah. You know, now what I'm that I'm doing talks for my book and going to conferences, I literally wear knee-high boots and a leather jacket and I walk on stage and literally everyone on the way, even the security guard will ask me, hey, where's your, what kind of Harley Davidson do you Where's have? your bike? bike you? <laughs> where's your bike? Yeah. And that tells you what an iconic brand is. It's the power yeah. of audiences that turn into communities that come together to create movements and over time through sustained rituals become cult-like brands.
And with that, <laughs> that is a great ending to our show today, Lloyd. You have been such a, such an inspiration. Um, you've uh, shared incredible pearls of wisdom and real life experience um, that I think is profound all these years later and has turned into a cult-like movement on your own. Uh, congratulations on your success. Congratulations on Bose. Congratulations on your new book. Where can our listeners find it? Definitely. So it's on fromgrassrootstogreatness.com or go on Amazon and search for From Grassroots to Greatness. And in the coming weeks, we'll have a page with a Notion doc with all the templates of taking the book further and putting into action behind the scenes interviews, et cetera. We'll also have a page with all my podcast experiences talking about the book, uh, podcast appearances. And then we'll also have a page with my podcast, the Traction Podcast, where I interview CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies. So there'll be a lot of content for you to learn from. And because of the power of the community, we became a Wall Street Journal bestseller a week after launch. We sold 7,300 copies during the week of launch and it hit the, on the week ending February 23rd, or sorry, the week ending September 23rd, it became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Congratulations. That is absolutely amazing. It's been such a joy to speak with you today. Lloyd, thank you so much for your appearance on the Integrate and Ignite podcast. You're a wonderful host, Lori. I could go on and on and on, but we have to end somewhere. You I know. <laughs> you have great energy. Awesome. Okay. Let me know when it's up and I'll add it on the website and we'll socialize it as well. Thank okay. you so much for being That's a wonderful great. host. Thank you, Lloyd. We'll talk to you real soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. This episode is complete. Head over to avocetcommunications.com for more ways to scale and grow your business. And be sure to tune in regularly for insights and motivation with host Lori Jones and her guests on the Integrate and Ignite Marketing Podcast.